Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the FT World Weekly podcast, looking at climate change and the UN Climate Summit in Durban. I'm Clive Cookson, FT Science Editor, standing in for your usual presenter, Gideon Rackman. We have a two-part show for you this week. In the first, I'll be talking to our environment correspondent, Polita Clark, who's been in South Africa since the conference started at the weekend. Then, we'll move on from the negotiations to find out what the two most important players in the debate the US and China, are actually doing on the ground to fight climate change. First, though, let me say hello to Polita on the phone in Durban. Hi, Polita. Hi, Clive. So, first of all, tell us about the mood at the conference. Well, the mood is one of uh, extreme uh, tension interspersed with an enormous amount of talking that doesn't seem to be achieving very much, I have to say. Apparently... This is normal in the first week of these conferences, which last for two weeks, and it's not until the ministers get here that uh, we really start to see decisions being taken. But fundamentally, um, the big test for this conference is uh, whether they're going to be able to get any sort of agreement on a new, comprehensive, uh, dare I say it, legally binding treaty to tackle climate change. And um, there's a particularly... Uh, there's, a, there's a deadline uh, that is creeping ever closer, and that is uh, by the end of next year, the first commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol actually runs out. And what that means is that uh, there's going to be no legally binding uh, means by which uh, countries will be obliged to cut their carbon emissions. The, the danger um, for the hosts here in South Africa is that they come to be seen as the country where the Kyoto Protocol died, and that's something they would like to avoid at all costs. But the South Africans um, have walked into the jaws of the lion here and have gone for a resolution on this incredibly difficult issue of the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, as well as trying to get some sort of legally binding comprehensive agreement that would bring in every country, not just the small number who are actually um, obliged to cut their emissions uh, in the Kyoto Protocol. The problem is here that you know the, all these summits inevitably are this sort of really interesting crucible of geopolitical tensions where we've got the industrialised world trying to draw in these really big, powerful emerging economies in China, Brazil, India, um, South Africa, and trying to say to them, well, look, you know, you are much bigger than you were in 1997 when the Kyoto Protocol was drawn up. We agreed then that you could be exempted; you didn't have to. Um, you weren't legally obliged to curb your emissions then. But things have changed since then. China, you've become the world's biggest carbon emitter. You've taken over from the United States. You did that actually in 2007. To which China inevitably says, well, the United States signed but never ratified Kyoto. Um, so why should we do anything when the US is doing nothing? It's been this dynamic that has dogged these talks for uh, well, pretty much ever since the protocol was signed. And so it, it's 
it's impossible to see how it can really be overcome because China and Brazil and India are absolutely clinging to their status as developing countries in this context and for understandable reasons. And the wealthy countries are saying, that's not good enough, we need something more. So my guess would be that at the end of the two weeks we will see some form of agreement. The question really is how meaningful that's going to be in terms of cutting emissions. And now, to give an economic dimension to the discussion, I'm joined in the studio by Chris Giles, the FT Economics Editor. Welcome, Chris. From an economic point of view, there's an argument that the world can't afford this action against climate change, the $100 billion a year global climate fund. And there's a counter-argument that action against climate change, alternative energy, can actually stimulate growth. Where do you stand on those two positions? Well, I think in the short term, it's pretty clear that were action to be taken to stem emissions, it would cost economies, because even though you might stimulate growth uh, by spending money on green technology, that money could have been spent on something else. And if it, w- if it wasn't forced into green technology, that something else would have a higher value, at least uh, as, w- as far as people themselves privately would value it. So I think in the short term, it clearly... Uh, stimulates growth. If climate change gets out of control, if global warming gets very bad in the long term, uh, having more growth now and a a non-green economy clearly has severely detrimental and potentially catastrophic effects on the global economy in the very long term. People don't tend to look at the very long term, people tend to look at the short term, and this is why it gets so difficult to find an agreement. So you have both this tension between the long term and the short term, and you also have an even harder tension, which is a coordination problem, that one country isn't willing to do anything to stem... um, global warming on its own because one country doesn't make a difference to global warming on its own and they need every country to agree and so you you find that no country is willing to go first and do it uh, unilaterally and we're seeing countries actually stepping back from Kyoto we saw the UK just this week actually saying that they were going to relax some of its uh, curbs on high energy emitters because they're worried about exporting jobs abroad at a time of economic stress. Pelita, how are the delegates in Durban handling this need to look at it in a very long-term way? Because we shouldn't forget that the science hasn't changed since Copenhagen. And since the original Kyoto Agreement, the view that man-made activities are causing climate change has grown stronger. That's exactly right. In fact, all these talks are occurring against a backdrop of uh, sundry agencies, be it the World Meteorological Organization or other UN bodies, that have been dropping reports steadily in the weeks leading up to this summit, all of which are showing that uh, global temperatures are warming and or greenhouse gas levels are reaching record levels. So if it were merely up to the science, an agreement would have been done some years ago. Clearly it's not up to the science, as Chris says. Um, There are very powerful economic and political forces here, and that's particularly so at a time of economic volatility, uh, as we're seeing now. Chris, how important do you think it is to have some sort of a price for carbon, some sort of emissions trading to to back this all up? Well, ultimately, this is the only way that you could have a global deal that would stick and would work, either through a tax scheme, which is probably better, carbon tax, so that everywhere there is a a price put on carbon, or you could have a cap and trade, a, 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 a trading system, which is 
maybe more acceptable to the US. These are sort of two sides of the same coin, but these are the only ways ultimately that you can get the incentives right so that people are actually faced with the damage they're doing to the planet um, in the price of carbon and then they can make the decisions appropriately on, on that basis. And that's really the only way it's going to work ultimately, but as Polita has very elegantly been describing, the diplomacy of this is extremely difficult and particularly the la- the, the fastest growing emitters are, have very little interest in signing up to anything on this scale at all. Polita, are they talking in Durban about trading, carbon permits, carbon taxes and so on? They are, but actually, Clive, what's happening is that even those talks are being drawn into this broader dispute between the North and the South. And um, so we've seen uh, China and Brazil and others say that unless the wealthy countries sign up to a second round of Kyoto, they are not going to permit the UN, UN-backed carbon offset scheme, which is the, um, the world's second biggest carbon market after the EU's emissions trading scheme. They're not going to permit that to go ahead. Uh, there's some legal ambiguity about whether, in fact, they can block it, but what is clear is that they will be using this as a negotiating ploy right through to the end of these talks. And it's the same with the Green Climate Fund, which is another big area of contention here. This is a, a big fund that was agreed two years ago that um, would be set up and under the auspices of the UN or under these talks. Um, yet last night we saw delegates bickering over the design of the fund um, with a, a lot of unhappiness on the part of some developing countries who think that the US effectively wants to run it through the World Bank, which is going to be an interim trustee. And we've seen the U.S. saying, well, you know, we've got these, we have serious concerns about the design of it, and it's all gone off now to um, the uh, president of the summit, the South African president, who is going to try to have formal talks to sort it all out. So, you know, again, you know, the, this, this um, very broad geopolitical dispute uh, between developing and developed countries has permeated every negotiation, every discussion here, it does make it very difficult to see how there is going to be a meaningful outcome. Well, thanks very much, Pilita. Thanks to you too, Chris. Thank you, Claire. For the second half of our podcast, we're going to focus on the two biggest players in the climate change game, the United States and China. I'm joined on the phone by Richard McGregor, the FT Washington Bureau Chief, and Leslie Hook, who covers Chinese energy policy in our Beijing Bureau. Hello, Richard. Good morning. And good evening, Leslie, I think. Hi, Clive. Thanks for having us. Today, we'd like to look beyond the political rhetoric and talk about what the US and China are actually doing on the ground to fight climate change. And let's start with the US. Visiting the Midwest last month and driving through Indiana, I was staggered by a vista of hundreds of huge wind turbines across the cornfields, generating hundreds of megawatts of energy between them. And it was a vivid sign to me that American companies, backed by government incentives, are investing substantially in non-carbon energy sources. So, Richard, how impressed are you by climate change efforts in the U.S.? Well, Clive, there's no doubt that in in the states, in in pockets, in areas, there's there's large investment going on in uh, renewables um, or non-carbon energy sources. But I think that obscures the, the larger picture, which is kind of uh, resurgent 
carbon intense uh, production energy production in the states um Imports now uh, of energy are down to about 46% of uh, U.S. consumption. That's remarkably down from about 60% in George W. Bush's second term. Uh, that's to do with greater oil production, but I think more substantially, uh, you know, uh, coal, methane, gas, or gas, or fracking, uh, whatever you call it, uh, to the point where the U.S. is on track again to be a net uh, petroleum exporter. Um, we haven't really had the uh, Canadian uh, oil from oil sands come online yet. That's a subject of big debate here. Um, but, you know, that, I think, is, is probably the biggest story uh, on top of um, a, a Congress and a presidency which really won't touch um, uh, legislation uh, on global warming or climate change. So energy security and energy economics trumps climate change. Leslie, what's the situation in China well, the situation is very different in China, Clive, and I think one key point to remember is that in China you have a very different set of economic incentives that are at work. The leadership in Beijing sees energy reform, um, carbon emissions reductions, and pollution uh, control as being tools that will help them uh, shift the economy in the direction that they want it to go. So um, partly for that reason and partly because you know, pollution and carbon emissions are very serious uh, issues here uh, in Beijing. It's been a very high priority um, for Beijing to move away from fossil fuels, uh, to move into renewable energy, um, and there's some very ambitious goals, which may or may not be met, but uh, they are certainly ambitious to to cut uh, emission intensity, um, you know, by 2015 and then 2020, and also to reduce China's overall energy intensity so that the same level of economic growth can be achieved less energy intensively. And do the Chinese authorities and indeed Chinese companies see non-carbon energy technology as another big export market? That could be a dividend too. That's true. Well, China is a big exporter of some key um, renewable technologies. Uh, solar panels uh, come to mind, which has recently been a big source of tension between uh, China and the U.S. Uh, as, as Richard will know, the U.S. is investigating whether or not China is dumping solar panels into the U.S. market. Uh, and Chinese wind turbine makers are also uh, very eager to expand abroad and opening offices all over uh, the world to sell uh, wind turbines overseas as well. So I think that will be a definite trend to watch in the next couple of years. Richard, do you think Americans, American policymakers, are at all worried that they could lose out on this new technology industrial revolution? I mean, maybe oil-powered economy is a dinosaur for the mid-21st century. Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> I think that's a major issue here. Uh, the U.S. is in a little bit of a bind because, on the one hand, they look at how China has turned, you know, um, reducing energy intensity into uh, industry policy and therefore is encouraging the production of wind turbines and solar energy, solar panels, as Leslie uh, talked about. Now, the U.S. itself has attempted to, uh, you know, subsidize, support uh, uh, solar energy production, solar panel manufacturing here as well. But we've had a major scandal with one particular Californian uh, firm, Solyndra, which closed even after it received a loan of over $500 million from the Obama administration. And that 
makes it very difficult for the administration, which wants to continue to use the state to compete with China, to do that because um, they have to answer for what happened to the loan uh, in this case. Uh, I also think that coming into the election year uh, in the US next year, and of course the selection year in China when the new leadership is chosen, China is gradually moving up the list of issues which you know resonate with the electorate. And I think the administration is very keen to find a trade issue which they can take China on about, you know, and solar panels is on that list. Will they have popular support in taking China on? Well, they will on the one hand. You know, it's always popular to sort of give China a kick, uh, and occasionally there may be good reason for that. But, you know, U.S. business on the one hand, you know, China is the biggest potential future market for it, both manufacturing inside China and selling into China. And that means, of course, they're very scared to stick their heads above the parapet when dealing with China. So, you know, U.S. business is still very conflicted about China, and that makes the kind of messages coming out of the business and political communities here still pretty mixed. Leslie, how will China react to yet another front in the trade war focusing on renewable energy technologies? Well, Clive, they've hit right back. Uh, They just announced a few days ago that China is going to investigate the U.S. subsidies for renewable energy uh, in exchange. Well, they didn't say it was in exchange, but the timing uh, was certainly just a couple weeks after the U.S. announced their trade probe. Um, So the uh, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce is investigating all U.S. renewable energy subsidy policies, not only solar or just wind. Um, and it's very early days. That case was just announced last week, so it's uh, too soon to tell exactly where it may lead. But um, the U.S. is is an exporter of some uh, solar-related uh, products to China, polysilicon and solar equipment manufacturing, for example. So, in fact, in just if you just look at the solar industry, the U.S. is a net exporter to China of those goods. Uh, there's a uh, there's actually a trade surplus in, in the U.S. Uh, favor in that industry. So certainly uh, the U.S. stands to to lose, too, if China imposes tariffs on, say, U.S. polysilicon exports to China. I'm afraid we have to wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Richard and Leslie. And thank you for listening to this special World Weekly on climate change. We'll be returning to the subject in a couple of weeks, when the Durban conference is over, to discuss what it has and hasn't achieved. Any comments would be welcome by email to audio at ft.com. World Weekly is produced by Martin Staber. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.